Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific program for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. He's the chairman emeritus of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about major cases pending before the Supreme Court. And also Professor Andrew Joppa will be joining us. We'll be talking about the news of the day. It is February the 7th, and on this day in 1881, Albert McKenzie pled guilty to a misdemeanor count of embezzlement in Alameda County, California. He had originally been charged with a felony for taking $52.50 from a sewing machine company for which he worked. However, rather than go to trial, the prosecution and defendant agreed to a plea bargain, a practice that was becoming increasingly common in American courts. The right to a trial by jury was considered a central part of the justice system in the early days of the United States. The Seventh Amendment to the Constitution in the Bill of Rights codified it as an essential part of American civil liberties. When uh, criminals were caught and charged, the government went through a trial and verdict. But in the 1800s, a trend towards plea bargaining began. In Alameda County, from 1880 to 1910, nearly 10% of all defendants charged changed their not guilty plea to guilty of lesser charges or uh, pled guilty reduced charges. Today, the plea bargain is an essential part of the criminal justice system. The great majority of charges, and this get this, over 90% in many jurisdictions are resolved through some type of plea bargain. I have real concerns about this, and quite frankly, you can just hear a binary choice. You know, if you don't agree to this plea bargain, uh, we're going to throw you in jail for life, or you'll probably be miserable and so, in other words, uh, rather than having a fair trial, you end up with some sort of intimidation. Keep in mind, these prosecutors have their own political lives they're fighting to keep uh, going. So in cases, uh, in many cases, they think may think that uh, their political success is more important than the justice they might be meeting out uh, to the public. I'm not sure about this. I'm not an attorney, I'm, and I don't practice law, but I am concerned about the the great majority of charges being uh, pled uh, over plea bargains as opposed to uh, a group of peers making decisions about uh, what's happening uh, with uh, justice. <clears throat> Stocks went up yesterday as investors' mold earnings report that beat expectations from companies by, like Planeteer and Spotify, but not every company had good news to share. New York Community Bancorp uh, fell to its lowest point since 1997, and Moody's downgraded it to junk. That could be a canary in the coal mine when it comes to community banks and what's happening with real estate values. Also, the federal government in 2023 overestimated the number of jobs in the U.S. economy by an average of 105,000 per month. In initial reports, equating to a cumulative monthly difference of 1.3 million jobs, according to the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The cumulative number of jobs reported each month was 1,255,000 less than previously thought, with new seasonal and uh, census data affecting total employment estimates, according to the data from the BLS. 
The huge downward revisions are in spite of a 115,000 upward revision in December, the only month that saw an upward revision to the employment report level in 2023. So is this now another agency that we can't trust the reports that are coming out? You know, all of this affects a number of things, including interest rate levels, uh, the uh, health of the economy, and just uh, so much more. We need to be able to trust these numbers. Well, former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted on legal crimes related to the 2020 election. That, according to a federal appeals court, said on Tuesday in a major blow to the former president's defense against charges brought against him by special counsel Jack Smith. For the purpose of this criminal case, this is a quote, Former President Trump has become Citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant, but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution, the court wrote. What? Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. Uh, But nevertheless, the unanimous ruling came from two judges appointed by Biden and one judge appointed by President George H.W. Bush. President uh, Donald Trump, needless to say, expressed his disagreement with this ruling of a three-judge pa- uh, panel, uh, which determined, by the way, they're from the D.C. Circuit on Tuesday, which determined that the president's immunity ceases upon leaving office. In response, Trump campaign, campaign spokesperson Stephen Chung uh, released a statement affirming their intention to appeal the decision in order to protect the presidency and uphold the Constitution. According to Chung's statement, denying immunity to a former president could set a precedent where every future president leaving office could face immediate indictment by opposing the opposing party. The statement emphasized that the importance of a complete immunity for a president to effectively fulfill their duties and responsibilities. Can you imagine the field day that there'd be with uh, Biden when he gets out of office if this uh, ruling holds true? Be unbelievable. Uh, Trump has consistently argued that his efforts to challenge the 2020 election results were part of his presidential duties and aimed at investigating election integrity rather than attempting to overturn the election outcome, as alleged by the indictment brought forth by special counsel Jack Smith in Washington, D.C. Chung's statement further contended that prosecuting a president for official acts violates constitutional principles, including presidential immunity and the separation of powers, thereby posing a threat to the foundation of the republic. Trump intends to appeal the ruling to safeguard both the presidency and the Constitution. The federal appeals uh, panel decision on Tuesday means that Trump could potentially face trial for his involvement in the challenge of the 2020 election based on allegations of election fraud. The ruling also set a a deadline for February the 12th for Trump's legal team to appeal to or request a stay before the Supreme Court. Originally scheduled to commence on March the 4th, the trial date was suspended pending the appeals process. I just can't imagine how people got through law school and served as judges and and ended up making a decision. Oh, you know, your immunity goes away once you're out of office. Uh, maybe uh, it does the day you get out of office for anything you do after that, but certainly not while you're serving as president. That just doesn't make sense. So does anyone recall a border crisis when Trump was president? Today's border crisis began on exactly January the 21st, the day of Joe Biden's inauguration when he opened the border to any and all who wanted to come in. So why are Republicans in the Senate making all this uh, complicated by negotiating a half-witted $118 billion bipartisan deal with moving parts under Trump, a controlled border, under Biden, total 
chaos. This is a president who didn't want to finish building the wall, who is welcoming illegal immigrants into the country with minimal effort at enforcement, who lifted the stay in Mexico rule, who initiated a catch-and-release program, who is instructing the federal border agents to cut wire fences that Texas erected uh, to deter illegal entries, and has made illegal immigrants eligible for welfare benefits, flying them all over the country. Meanwhile, Democratic governors and mayors around the country declared themselves to be sanctuary cities and states, uh, which was open to an invitation for illegals to come. They've also passed laws making illegals eligible for all sorts of government benefits. New York, Illinois, California are demanding federal pa- tax dollar payments uh, to pay for the care of the migrants that they say would uh, greet them with open arms. Nope, it's uh, your sanctuary city and state. You pay for it. Don't expect a government to come uh, to your rescue. Of course, they'll probably consider it. Late last week, the House voted for a bill to make drivers who are intoxicated or intoxicated or impaired by alcohol or drugs and those guilty of Social Security fraud eligible for deportation if they're non-citizens. Amazingly, 150 House Democrats, 70% of the caucus, voted against these provisions. These Democrats fell in line behind the squad of radical progressives who called it racist. Squad Commander Rishat Talib of uh, Michigan warned that the bill was about creating a separate and unequal just system of justice. Well, these people aren't even citizens. Unbelievable. These people are about as committed to border security as Al Capone was ending crime in Chicago. House Republicans and uh, Trump are rightfully denouncing this cockamamie scheme, and the MSNBC complained with a straight face uh, that the Republicans are the ones who are blocking border security. Can you believe that? The GOP's response to this should be short and simple. We don't need a law. We don't need another $100 billion debt finance spending bill. All Biden needs to do is to control the border, is to enforce the law and put it back in place, uh, the Trump border policies that he repealed, period, hard stop. Just let it end right there. He doesn't need one farthing coming from the federal government to, to do that. He dismantled it. He can put it back together again by executive order. Republicans should stop negotiating with frauds, make the November election a referendum on the issue that every poll shows is the greatest concerns of Americans, the out-of-control border. Biden has created a humanitarian, fiscal, and national security calamity, and nearly every voter knows that. Well, Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel is reportedly planning to step down from a position after long-facing calls to do so amid poor fundraising halls for the GOP. McDaniels reportedly told the former uh, President Donald Trump that she will step down after the South Carolina GOP primary on February the 24th, according to people familiar with the plans. And while the New York Times reported that uh, McDaniel has informed Trump she would resign, other outlets citing different sources suggested the conversation has been less definitive. Trump and McDaniel reportedly met on Monday at uh, Mar-a-Lago State, On the same day as the reported meeting, Trump offered kind words from McDaniel, pointing to the success in the 2016 presidential campaign before suggesting he would soon recommend changes at the RNC. Uh, In my successful run to 2016, state of Michigan really came through, first time in decades that it was won by a Republican, and it was headed up by my friend Ronna McDaniel. McDaniel is now head of the RNC, and I'll be making a decision that day after the South Carolina primaries to my recommendations for the RNC growth. He posted on True Social. Ironically, he doesn't have anything to do with the RNC. He raises his own money. McDaniel doesn't raise money for him. 
you know, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. Uh, she spent all kinds of money, $1.5 million on flowers and so forth. I mean, and she's got nothing to show for it. Uh, uh, defeats after defeat after defeat uh, in, uh, in campaigns where we should have had a red tide. And uh, she spent a lot of money, but got nothing to show for it. So let's get somebody new in there. Uh, Michael Watley is a, apparently the North Carolina GOP chairman is the one to succeed her. Uh, of course, he has to be elected to the to claim the job. Uh, Nikki, let's end uh, this segment with this. Nikki Haley was swamped Tuesday in Nevada's symbolic Republican presidential primary as GOP voters resoundingly picked none of the candidates, none of these candidates' option on the ballot in a repudiation of the former UN ambassador, who was in last remaining uh, major rival for frontrunner Trump. That's right. She was on the battle uh, ballot. <clears throat> it, there's no not, nothing. No consequence comes out of this. But apparently, none of the above beat Haley in the Nevada primary. Uh, now the caucuses will determine who actually gets uh, the delegates. <clears throat> but uh, a pretty clear message, to Nikki Haley. Uh, you're not in it, so uh, you should get out of it. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. And now serving dinner, 4 to 8 p.m., Wednesdays through Saturdays, a terrific menu. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. 
Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He is the Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. Last week, we kind of set the pins for discussion on the major cases pending before the Supreme Court. Let's begin this year's preview with the cases on regulatory uh, overreach. What's the issue here? Yeah, this is reigning in the administrative state, which is basically the exercise of legislative power by these executive departments and, and, and independent regulatory agencies. You know, we have these agencies operating overtime. I mean, HHS is regulating our health care, and the FCC is trying to control the Internet, and we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau enforcing Dodd-Frank. And, you know, to, to grasp the scope of that problem, these federal agencies now dwarf Congress when it comes to making rules that control what uh, Americans can do. The, you know, the rules are printed in the uh, Code of Federal Regulation. It's now the more than 200 bound volumes, about four times as large as the U.S. Code that contains all the laws passed by Congress. In the, in the final year of the Obama administration, Congress enacted almost 3,000 pages of laws. But if that sounds like a lot, that same year, the federal agencies churned out 12 times as much, mm. 32, uh, 32 times as much, 97,000 pages. Uh, of uh, of regulations, quite extraordinary. Kind of makes life like walking through saltwater taffy to to uh, <laughs> do yeah. anything productive here in the United States. These agencies, that's, so that's right. You how about the attempt? Watch out for the regulator. Exactly. So, ha- how about the attempt to overturn the so-called Chevron doctor doctrine? Yeah, this is a big one. And that uh, part one of the Chevron doctrine goes like this: uh, If Congress passes a law that directly addresses an issue and the intent of Congress is clearer, then the statute controls. But there's part two. If the statute is silent or ambiguous, then the courts will defer to any reasonable interpretation by the agency. And in this case, uh, Loper versus uh, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Romando, uh, the court's going to decide whether to over, overrule that Chevron doctrine or at least clarify whether imprecise statutory provisions justify deferring to the agency's interpretation. It may sound like a a minor matter, but the the Chevron doctrine has been targeted by conservatives uh, for decades Mm -hmm. because because conservatives argue it lets Congress off the hook. It gives far too much discretion to these unelected officials. 
And over the years, Chevron really has been the fuel that propels uh, this administrative state. It really is, and uh, this is such an important. So, what would be the outcome? Would it be, for example, that, that they would say uh, uh, they send it back to Congress and say you need to clarify the law? Or how, what, what would be the consequence if, in fact, Chevron were overturned? Well, there could be a range of possible outcomes. It depends on how narrowly the court writes the opinion. Mm. It could be the most. <clears throat> I think the most uh, productive outcome would be: Hey, if, if Congress, if you can't clarify what you mean, you better do it over again. But another possible outcome would be that the court will exercise much more rigorous scrutiny of the language instead of leaving it up to the agency. That puts the court in the business of legislating, and that's not a great idea either. So it would be much better to send it back to Congress. So tell us more about the agency that's funded without a congressional appropriation. Yeah, the... um, CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, writes and enforces the rules for financial institutions and attracts consumer complaints. So the question in this case is whether the funding for the CFPB violates the appropriations clause of the Constitution. That clause says no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. So Congress approved uh, CFPB funding directly from the Federal Reserve. Each year, the agency asks the Fed for amount that's reasonably necessary to carry out its function. And so long as that amount doesn't exceed uh, 12% of the Fed's total operating expenses, then the Fed is required to transfer the amount to the agency. So if the Supremes determine that this funding mechanism is unconstitutional, as it does seem to me to be, uh, that would upend regulations enacted over the past dozen years uh, since Elizabeth Warren sponsored the Dodd-Frank Act that established uh, the CFPB way back in 2011. Boy, Bob, it seems so uh, unconstitutional to have this kind of a funding that bypasses, uh, you know, the power to the purse, so to speak. And how could it go on for a dozen years? I guess the wheel of justice uh, uh, grinds slow. It does, and the, and the government is pointing to other uh, funding mechanisms that also seem to circumvent uh, the uh, uh, the appropriations clause. So it's always whataboutism. Yeah, wow. So the SEC prosecutes people without a jury trial. Uh, what will the Supreme Court or the Supreme say about that? Yeah, it's going to test whether these in-house courts that the SEC have Uh, violate the separation of powers principle and the right to the jury trial, which is, of course, in the Seventh Amendment. Uh, This is a centerpiece of the Constitution's checks and balances, dividing power between executive, legislative, and judicial branches. But the SEC is an independent agency, so it doesn't belong to any of those branches. And yet it has, it passes laws, it enforces laws, and it has its own judges, yeah. So the guy in this case, his name is Jarkizi, he was charged with securities fraud. He was not tried by a jury. The SEC argues that jury trials are reserved for private common law actions, not for government regulatory litigation. My guess, the SEC is going to lose on the jury trial question, at least with respect to litigation 
that could result in the imposition of significant penalties on private parties. Now, if that happens, that's going to have a big impact on the structure of a lot of these agencies who have in-house courts. I don't think the Supremes are going to go further and eviscerate decades of precedent that says Congress can delegate some lawmaking functions to these uh, regulatory bodies. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, there's uh, uh, cases or courts that uh, adjudicate uh, cases in in patent law, and uh, they operate within the the, uh, the, uh, executive branch. So to me, that seems so unconstitutional. Yeah, I mean, separation of powers is really a cornerstone of the Constitution, and it would be very nice if the court reinvigorates uh, that provision. Yeah. You know, Bob, uh, gun control is back in, 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 uh, <clears throat> back in uh, controversy. Uh, will the court keep guns away from domestic violent perps? Well, we have this case, U.S. v. Brahimi, and the court's going to decide whether a federal statute that bars possession of firearms by persons under a domestic violence restraining order uh, flouts the Second Amendment. So this guy, Rahimi, is clearly uh, a bad dude, and he has a record of violence. But we had this decision two years ago called Bruin, and it says that any gun restrictions have to be consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. So unless the court can find an analogous regulation that existed in 1791 when the Second Amendment was ratified, it may be forced either to throw out Rahimi's conviction or for, for gun possession or modify this Bruin standard, which would be quite a development because that standard is less than two years old. And the court very rarely addresses uh, overturning something it's done very recently. So fascinating. Bob, I want to pick up the conversation again next Wednesday when we talk about this. Bob, leave again, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Uh, and by the way, Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Coming up, Professor Andrew Joppa, that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Make it a convenient and stress-free experience by calling the dynamic and trustworthy husband and wife team of Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties. Find out about their unique and complimentary post-closing concierge services not offered by other area agents. Matt and Megan Chionis give you the competitive advantage to command a premium price for your property. They personally attend all showings, create a marketing strategy for your property, and offer that complimentary concierge service to your potential buyer. This hands-on approach has helped them set several sales records in Pelican Bay and many at near record prices. Megan and Matt Chionis understand that as an affluent buyer-seller, your needs and desires are unique. You deserve this level of service. Megan and Matt Chionis are passionate about the Naples lifestyle and they want you to enjoy it too. Call Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties at 239-269-5310. That's 239-269-5310. Do you have questions about your retirement? 
Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show. Are you seeking new customers or contacts for your business? Why not promote your business to our loyal listeners? Join Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, the Collier Senior Center, Lulabee's Diner, and many others who've been advertising on the show, in many cases, for years. The rates are reasonable, and there's no required long-term commitments or contracts. Let me help you promote your business to our loyal listeners here on The Bob Harden Show. Visit the website, bobharden.com, or send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. That's bobharden at hotmail.com. Welcome back to The Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Tim Garrett, candidate for Collier County Supervisor of Elections. Tim's a great guy. He's a 33-year resident of Collier County, a military veteran, a retired sheriff's officer, and a graduate of the FBI National Academy. Uh, Tim stands for Safe, Secure, Ethical Elections in Collier County. Vote for Tim Garrett and check out the website, VoteForTimGarrett.com, paid for by Tim Garrett, Republican for Collier County, Supervisor of Elections. We have with us Professor Andrew Jopper, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good, good morning, Bob, and I won't be with you next week at this time, so or at least for the holidays, so happy Valentine's Day, Bob. Oh, you're taking Valentine's Day no, off? No, no, I'm, I'm just suggesting that it will, will pass before I'm back with you. Oh. I wanted to be sure I, I got this in. I understand, Andy. Well, thank you, and right back at you. I hate that holiday, by the way, Bob. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll make that the topic of another show. It's one of those holidays where you can only come out on the short end of the stick. You know, there's <laughs> something that you must do to qualify as a legitimate uh, husband or, or 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 lover. So. Well, maybe, maybe you should put that on your. You're, you're in the doghouse. You Bob. should put that into the in the festivist list. For, <laughs> so, Andy, you usually start the show with some sort of a, a quote or some good news. Uh, you have I, I've got a couple of quotes I think are interesting. Uh, one confirms something we're already aware of. Recently, uh, Joe Biden, uh, in my interest of bipartisanship, I offer a quote from Joe Biden. He said, he said, right after I was elected, that was uh, in 2020, I went to a G7 meeting. I sat down and said, America is back. And Mitterrand from Germany, no, I mean France, looked at me and said, how long are you back for? Now, here he got two things wrong. First of all, he, he ascribes the French presidency to, the, to, to Germany uh, and essentially has uh, identified a French president that died in 1996. Uh, so I think this is, again, a significant indication of a man that is in a state of mental deterioration. I, you know, you, I, and almost anyone that you and I know of our comparable age would never have made this mistake. Uh, it is an impossible mistake to make if your brain is functioning at any level of, of, of acuity, Bob. 
You know, that's so true. And uh, well, it's just unbelievable what's happening in the world. You think, well, where does the buck stop? It stops with Joe Biden, and then you just shake your head. How could this possibly be? It's unbelievable. The guy, he can't put together a piece together a couple of sentences for crying out loud without making that kind of an error. It's quite obvious. And again, this gets back to a position I've taken for a long time as it pertains to the 2024 elections. The, uh, as far as I see it, as far as I can understand it, the only reason the, the Democrats would go with Biden as their nominee is if they are sure of the election results in 2024 based on any manipulation they can apply to those votes. So uh, that is my concern, is that Biden represents the awareness of the left that the election is is in the bag, as it was, I believe, in 2020 when Biden stayed in his basement. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I think the majority of Americans still agree uh, with Trump when he says that the, late, the election was stolen from him. I mean, there were illegal things done in order to uh, parse, parse together these uh, the results, and it was all illegal. It was, uh, and I'm sure they're up to the same things this time. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's what they do, and there's no doubt that they will proceed in the same direction in 2024. You know, speaking of that, when you talk about Americans, there was a recent, this is sort of a quote, uh, quotation itself. Uh, I recently heard a quotation that said that Donald Trump would win perhaps all 50 states if only men voted. Said they, he would win with surety 45 states if only men voted based on current demographics. I think this highlights the dramatic uh, separation between men and women in terms of how they process candidates for, for national office. And so uh, that, that 50 may be extreme, but again, 45 based on current numbers uh, would be absolutely uh, reasonable in terms of what it, what it suggests. I think we have to somehow try to understand what creates this traumatic differentiation between men and women, Bob. And, and, and also, I just question the veracity of that comment. I, who, who made that comment? What's the uh, research based on? Yeah, the, the, the comment was based on the, the current polling as, uh, nationally in terms of uh, voting preference in the 50 states mm. and just looking at the, the, the male portion of the vote. And that particular portion was validated you know, b uh, beyond the quote. So, again, the quote is, to, to the largest extent, accurate. So I'm not going to stand behind the absolute accuracy of it. But mm -hmm. we know, Bob, absolutely, that there is a significant voting differentiation between men and women for all national offices. We know that as an absolute truth, Bob. That is so interesting, Andy. Well, again, uh, any more? I'm not going to call that good news, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that wasn't. That was, that was a quote. <laughs> okay. Any good news for us? Uh, a good news story. Um, a jury has found Jennifer Grumbly, Crumbly um, guilty of involuntary manslaughter in terms of the, uh, the shooting death created by her son, Ethan uh, Crumbly, uh, in terms of... Uh, in, in Michigan, uh, in, back in 2021, I guess it was. Uh, I think this is a good news story. The uh, Crumbly family had uh, ignored all the warning signs. They, in fact, had purchased this weapon for him. Uh, there were all kinds of indications that this was a, uh, a very dangerous young man. And so I think in this case, this is a good news story that uh, a jury has decided to invoke criminal penalties against the Crumbly. My, my only uh, possible 
resistance to this is a, a slippery slope argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I know in America how these type of things can get extended into uh, a politicized type of moves. So, yes, I think parents should be held responsible, specifically in cases like the Crumleys, Bob. But again, I think there are many other situations where uh, parental responsibility could be invoked where it would not be possible for the parents to actually control the actions of their teenager, Bob. So he was a teenager. He wasn't of majority age. He wasn't the uh, an adult. No, he, he was a, an older teenager, let's call him, which uh, effectively for all biologic and psychological purposes, in my estimation, this is a, a young man. Um, but again, I, I have no problem with the verdict against the Crumbies. I think it was absolutely correct. Uh, my concern is the slippery slope argument as it pertains to how American justice functions uh, and if American parents will eventually be held responsible for every wayward action of their, of their teenage uh, child. I think that becomes a, a very serious issue in terms of uh, what might proceed from this going forward. Now, that does not negate the verdict, uh, the appropriate verdict in the Crumbly situation, but uh, knowing American justice, how it works, I, I am concerned about that hyper extension of this decision uh, going forward, Bob. Speaking of decisions, can you believe this uh, uh, verdict by the uh, appeals court, the, this, the panel that uh, says that Trump is, should be treated as a private citizen and whatever immunity he had as president ceases to exist now that he's out of office, including well, the things that he did absurd. while he was president? The, the action that they theoretically, and by the way, there's been no crime defined in terms of the January 6th incident, incident as it pertains to Trump, but he was president at that point. Right. Uh, so essentially then to suggest this is private citizen Donald Trump, no, this was, uh, the whole situation revolves around President Donald Trump. So no, I can't believe the decision, but uh, in the sense of knowing America, how it's been responding with uh, with very politicized jurors and, uh, and, and juries beyond on that, uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not really surprised by that verdict, Bob. Disappointed, but not surprised. Yeah, pretty much. All yeah, right, Andy, yes. we're going to take a little break. Can you stick around? Here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Two-thirds of parents prefer educational options for their children, with 40% strongly preferring options for their child's education. School choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior quality schools of choice. Optima's goal was the successful launch of Hillsdale College Varney Charter School, Initiative Classical Academies, and other schools of excellence across the state of Florida, serving kindergarten through the 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through a content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. In a terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy has already opened here in Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website Optima.Foundation. Help children in Florida optimize their educational opportunities. Visit www.Optima.Foundation. 
Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, changing lives through exceptional theater experiences. Building a new 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples is going to be ready on the first performance, November the 1st. Very exciting. So you can find out more and get tickets to upcoming performances. Visit the website, Golf Shore Playhouse. Org. We continue the conversation with Professor Andrew Joppa. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good to be here, Bob. Andy, I don't want to let any good news go by. Do you have some more good news for us? Uh, I'll give you the result of the Super Bowl if you want it. The Chiefs are going to win it 31-21 to because of the running pass game of Patrick Mahomes. Uh, the, the, the Ravens had beaten the 49ers uh, earlier on with the same type of quarterback, a running passing quarterback. So if you want to put your money out in this game, go with the Chiefs. 31 to 21 over the 49ers. That's good news in my estimation because I've never been right, Bob. <laughs> okay. That's good. So how about what happened in, uh, is it, is it uh, Nevada? Oh, in, in Nevada, interesting, uh, not a particularly significant story, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning. Uh, the uh, Nevada primary last night, um, none of these candidates listed received 63% of the vote. Nikki Haley uh, 31%. So Nikki Haley lost 31 to 63 against none of these candidates. So and none of these candidates obviously would be the Republicans showing up and voting for Donald Trump, even though he was not on the on the ticket. Uh, so I think that's uh, another story. Nikki Haley, I believe, is, is hanging around with some sort of a presumption that uh, for some reason Donald Trump will not be able to run or will drop out of the race and she will be the last candidate standing. I believe she's totally wrong in that presumption, even if Trump is, for some unacceptable reason, eliminated from this race. Nikki Haley will not be the Republican candidate. So uh, this, this, pro- this premise that I think she's building her campaign on is a faulty one in my estimation, Bob. Well, in my estimation, it's got all. It's all about funding. If uh, once the Koch brothers decide they're not going to fund her race anymore, she's out of it. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that's that's true. But I think she has personal motivations beyond that finance. I think she sees this as a significant way of leveraging her political future. I think she's wrong in those estimations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, these things are hard to uh, hard to anticipate. But I think what I said before is a large part of it. Nikki Haley believes she'll be the last candidate standing if Trump, for some reason, is eliminated. So, um, you know, I, none of these things can be proven, obviously. We're just uh, trying to draw from the, uh, the, the knowledge we have on the surface of this issue, Bob. 
You know, Andy, uh, off air, you'd uh, mentioned there's some canal problems, both in the Suez and the Panama Canal. I wonder if you could elaborate for our listeners. Well, I'm currently teaching a class, as I typically do each semester, in international marketing. So uh, I and my class, we've been banding us about for a few weeks now uh, because the issue has been going on for, uh, for a while, and that is the, the problems being experienced in both the, uh, the Panama Canal and in the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Panama Canal, the uh, Panamanian government had, uh, in, the, in the recent past, had expanded the size of the, the canal, and in so doing, they had failed to take into account the implication of the need for extra water to fill the locks, the mm-hmm. extra fresh water that was needed. So at this point, with a drought, not a, not a dramatic drought, this is a, uh, a fairly uh, uh, limited drought as we can define these things, uh, the canal are not able, the Panama Canal is not able to function at full capacity. Uh, right now, there's only perhaps 20 ships a day that might go through, and they can only go through half-loaded. Uh, so many of the, the carriers are, are dropping the, um, their goods on the, uh, the Caribbean side of the canal, and they're transporting these by rail across Panama to be picked up on the other side. Wow. So you can imagine a ship will unload in, in uh, eastern, eastern Panama. That ship will then go someplace else empty. The ship on the, uh, the other side will go down there empty. And then, you know, so you have this tremendous inefficiency, this tremendous, wow. and by the way, the other alternative, Bob, is going around the tip of South America. The, the inflationary impact and the, uh, the shortage of goods that might result because of delayed shipping time uh, is going to be dramatic. There doesn't seem to be, if this uh, drought persists, uh, in its current form, there doesn't seem to be any resolution that that's in, in store for the Panama Canal. Now, I can almost guarantee, Bob, if we had not yielded uh, the Pan- Panama Canal back to Panama in the late 70s under Jimmy Carter, I can almost guarantee the United States engineering teams would not have allowed this kind of dysfunction to exist. So this is a serious issue. Uh, it will dramatically affect uh, inflationary impact and the availability of goods. Uh, so, so will the, the, the passing African Asian area? We have the Suez Canal, which is for all practical purposes been closed down uh, by the Houthi rebels and their yeah. attack on the uh, on the shipping lanes in that area. Uh, the Suez Canal was the major conduit from goods from uh, Asia coming into Europe, and again with the same implication as the the Panama Canal's problems. Except in the Suez Canal, there is not a comparable uh, railroad connection to uh, to allow this easy transport to take place from the from the uh, Arabian Sea up to the Mediterranean, uh, basically to the Mediterranean. So these two canals, the two major links that that enable current trade and and transportation to exist, there these are critical links within the uh, the trading circumstances of the globe and have been so for decades upon decades. These both of these are in serious trouble. I think the thing we can say about the Suez Canal is that it can be uh, the problem can be alleviated merely by uh, by stopping the Houthi assault on the shipping. So there is a, a immediately correctable problem if anyone takes that action. On the other hand, the Panama Canal is a problem that is beyond control if the drought persists, Bob. Well, if, if once the drought ends, will that solve the problem? I mean, it, it, this sounds like an engineering problem to me. Well, it is an engineering problem because this is something that has to be uh, brought in, uh, taken into account during the construction, 
that had to be taken during the expansion phase. So it is an engineering problem. And uh, whether or not uh, in limited uh, freshwater circumstances there is some way that this engineering can be re, uh, reconstructed to uh, take into account this drought potential, uh, I have not heard that as a possibility. From everything I understand about it, about it, Bob, the drought has to end for this uh, serious deficiency in the Panama Canal to end uh, itself, Bob. That is so interesting. Again, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. And you want to take another little break? Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, You'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. They get the politics, they know policy, and they help prepare elected officials to have winning strategies in their elected offices. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We continue the conversation with Professor Andrew Joppa. Again, Professor Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here, Bob. Thank you, Andy. So I would, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on this uh, dust-up around immigration on the border bill. Well, it's an immigration and foreign aid bill, as we uh, we can see in the numbers, Bob. I, I think uh, to get to the, uh, the cut to the chase real quickly, to me the biggest problem with this bill is if it is approved, and I do not believe it will be, as, as best I understand the bouncing ball of Mitch McConnell, he is 
standing saying the bill will not get approved. He's now standing against that bill. I don't think it'll be approved. Howsomever, it has gotten this far, and this is more so a foreign aid bill Mm -hmm. than really an immigration bill. And if this is approved, if this bill were to be approved, it would uh, sort of uh, prevent any subsequent serious legislative decisions from being made. So this is the problem with bad legislation. Not only is it bad in itself, but essentially it precludes the the future potential of more significant legislative changes being made. So that uh, you know, my quick statement on it, that would be it. If we look at the amount that's being allocated, I, as best I understand the numbers at this point, $118 billion of cost associated with this bill. Of that, and I've heard different numbers on this, but the number that is most recent in terms of what I've seen is $60 billion of the $118 billion would go to the funding of the Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here you have essentially more than half of the funding in this theoretically Im- uh, an immigration-based bill that would be allocated to the Ukraine war. Another $15 billion, let's say, I think, $14 billion would go to, uh, to Israel for the current uh, Gaza circumstance. Uh, another $5 billion perhaps would go to the, uh, the Pacific Basin area, primarily Taiwan. So, so we'd have here a, a number that would be around $80 billion mm-hmm. of the $118 billion theoretically earmarked for immigration uh, would essentially be going into a variety of foreign aid packages. And I, I think any reasonable person can see that the, uh, the Democrat intent here is to link the aid to Ukraine to the immigration bill. Uh, because that is what their destination really is. And they always know, and I've seen the headlines on this uh, today consistently uh, for the last week or so, that the Republicans will uh, prevent the immigration bill from taking place. And again, a typical politicization of an issue by the left, uh, where they take a a, a bad piece of legislation, it has a name that sounds significant, and, and essentially the Republicans are then blamed for preventing this from going forward. And we're going to see that as this bill gets defeated. Uh, so let, let's hope there is a, a better destination for this. Uh, before we run out of time, let, let me just uh, add a couple of my own thoughts uh, outside of the immigration bill, per se. Uh, in the first place, Bob, if, and by the way, there's like a, a threshold of 5,000 immigrants a day that will be allowed in this bill. So up to 4,999, apparently nobody is going to care. That's going to be over a million a year that will be allowed legally in uh, who have essentially started out in an illegal status, right. uh, plus, plus coupled with the money. So in, in my estimation, Bob, if anyone is able to get any part of their body into the United States, the essential battle to control immigration is over. Right. In other words, because of our laws, because of our general, uh, let's call it categorically, our humanitarian uh, instincts, if someone manages to get any part of their body into the United States, the discussion about this is really moot, uh, because, again, it is, a, is an empty discussion from that point forward. So the question then becomes to me, how do we prevent these illegals from actually entering the United States. There's no good answer for that. But I think if that answer cannot be created, then any other discussions about immigration are just, uh, in, in, in the short and long run, both purposeless. 
Another issue that I think has to be considered is the, the area of refugee status. Now, uh, individuals coming in from Central and South America are claiming a refugee status, and that is their, their automatic, you know, their, they, they, they say, I've, I've been terrorized, I'm afraid, uh, you know, wh- whatever words they use, and this is automatically a free pass into the United States. I think what we have to see, Bob, is the State Department of the United States analyzing the governmental structure of the Central American countries and the South American countries and determine categorically whether or not these are states by, by political alignment that are hostile to its citizens. We, we can't asset. If you're coming in from a country that has no direct political process that is punishing you, terrorizing you, threatening you, then essentially we're talking about somebody who doesn't like their neighbors, yeah. somebody who doesn't like the guy next door, as compared to what refugee status should be generated by, which is a systemic uh, approach by their government to impose uh, uh, terror on a citizen for political purposes. So we've got to get, take a better look at what refugee status means, because right now it's being used as a, as a get-into-America-free card uh, with almost no restrictions being applied, Bob. So uh, my thoughts on this is that, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, Biden dismantled the uh, border protection program that Trump had installed. He dismantled it by executive of fiat by order, as opposed, and he did it very quickly, and uh, he did it with no money. He doesn't need money in order to get put the programs back in place that uh, that Trump had in place. He needs to do that, and uh, quite frankly, doesn't need funding. He needs to do that before, in my opinion, before anything else is funded, uh, including Ukraine, uh, Taiwan, and Israel. I mean, it seems to be that simple, and I'm not in any way negating what you're saying, because I agree. Uh, this is not rocket science. We should be, every country in the world maintains closed borders. Even the most backward banana republics mm. have borders that are secure. So for the United States to find it somehow uh, almost uh, impossible to close down our borders uh, is just is absurd on its face, Bob. But yet this is going on, and I think you know we can bring up a lot of reasons as to why open borders would be uh, needed, acceptable by the left. And, and by the way, some on the right, the, the right would be seeking uh, lower-cost em- employees. Right. Uh, but I think the major issue is the political issue uh, that has been cited uh, many times in terms of the political value that would be gained by this huge number uh, of refugees that the left anticipates uh, immediately or in the long run at least uh, becoming significant supporters of the left in their political process. No question. They're simply incubating Democrat voters uh, while they're here in the United good, States. Good word, Bob. Good, good word. <laughs> Again, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. All right. Thank you, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got some great guests lined up for tomorrow, including Dr. George Markovich, orthopedic surgeon, uh, Keith Laws, the co-founder and CEO of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Always look to, forward to his updates on public education here in Florida. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, always has some insight in what's happening here uh, on the local political scene. I always appreciate your listening to the show, and I just genuinely appreciate your patronage, and I hope 
uh, you'll consider uh, sharing the news about the show to your friends and the neighbors. That's one of the ways we support our advertisers, and we can't do the show without them. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>